Welcome to iScanning Conversation, where we talk about cybersecurity, military defense, crisis communications, and much more with industry experts from around the globe. Stay tuned. Major news. After days on the razor's edge, Ukraine is now a nation at war. Just hours ago, Russian forces began their attack. President Vladimir Putin warning other countries that any attempt to interfere with the Russian action will lead to, quote, consequences they have never seen. The counteroffensive in Ukraine is going to plan. That's according to Ukraine's president. But one month into the country's renewed fight to take back territory seized by Russia, that may be the case. It is not without a hefty cost. That was accumulation of news reporting from U.S. media companies ABC and CNN on the current state of the Ukraine war. Welcome to iScan Group's podcast series, In Conversation, and today we continue our series Ukraine War, Lessons Learned from Open Source, Part 2, 3 and 4. Joining today's discussion is iScan Group's Head of Capabilities, Counterintelligence and Head of Next Level Threat Open Source Center is Yusta Yu, Head of Capabilities, Crypto Kent Babin, iScan Group's Senior Advisor, Arno Sobrero, and Andrew Vasco, the group's CEO. Before starting our discussion, let's review a brief analysis from the group's open source center on the Ukraine war. On the 500th day since Russia's invasion and as the war grinds on, Ukrainian forces are advancing without enough arms and ammunition and with its main cities under constant threat. Ukraine's army has been on the offensive to reconquer territory captured by Russian forces in the east and the south. Despite receiving billions of euros in Western military aid, the Ukrainian army has only managed to take back around a dozen villages and a few hundred square kilometers of territory since the start of the offensive. The group's open source center see three scenarios for the next phase of the Ukraine war and significance to China as the war continues several issues will be raised. 1. The strength of the Sino-Russian alignment 2. China, which has been deliberately raising its profile as a peacemaker during the conflict how will this play out? 3. The war has been called world's first AI war and also world's first open source war, what are these implications moving forward? Scenario 1 The war is won by Ukraine. Russia's loss in Ukraine would send a powerful signal confirming both the West's resilience and weakness of authoritarian aggressors. The victory of Ukraine would be challenging China's east wind prevailing strategy. Other factors would also have to be considered like the nature of the defeat, would a defeat see a departure of Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, but also his inner circle, a new Russian government might deprioritize relations with China and reprioritize good relations with the West, which would be a blow to Beijing. Scenario 2 The war is won by Russia. Russia's victory might empower Beijing to move to much more risky behavior, especially against Taiwan. Taiwan would face massive pressure from Chinese armed forces, forcing the U.S. to respond militarily. Moreover, China's position towards Europe would be much stronger. A Russian victory in Ukraine would give China more global power. Scenario 3 Deadlock war will continue in a state of stalemate for some time in China as it can continue to benefit from cheap Russian commodities. Russian dependence on China which has been growing since 2014, will be even greater, making Russia permanently reliant on China for raw materials. 
This was always the stuff of nightmares for Russian policymakers in the 1990s. But under this scenario it could turn into a reality. The frozen conflict scenario allows Beijing to continue its policy of alleged neutrality while promoting its peacemaker role, without having to make any difficult choices. China's current strategic position. In its bid to position itself as a peacemaker, China has taken steps to assert its role in global affairs. Although the peace plan announced in February primarily reasserted existing positions with minimal details, one notable aspect was point 12, which emphasized China's willingness to provide assistance in post-conflict reconstruction. This is significant considering China's status as Ukraine's top trade partner in 2019. Despite maintaining a robust partnership with Russia, China aims to position itself as a potential peacemaker in the event of Russia's defeat, positioning itself favorably to capitalize on the economic reconstruction of Ukraine. Xi's recent call with Ukraine's President Zelensky suggests this intention. China's increasing activism in global affairs is exemplified by its notable contributions to UN peacekeeping efforts, both in terms of resources and its involvement in regions such as Africa and the Middle East. These actions align with Xi broader global security initiative, which seeks to expand China's diplomatic influence, uphold multilateralism, and challenge Western notions of a liberal international order centered around Washington. China's current challenges in the shorter term, Beijing has found advantages by one. Taking advantage of a sanctioned Russia and benefiting from affordable Russian commodities. Two, Chinese corporations have successfully seized emerging opportunities in the Russian market. However, the ongoing conflict poses a substantial risk to global supply chains, including critical shipments of grain and fertilizer that are vital to China's reliance. The long-term implications of the war on China's strategies in East Asia remain uncertain. The invasion by Russia has diverted U.S. resources away from the Asia-Pacific region. However, the recent developments in Ukraine have heightened the importance of Beijing's potential threat to Taiwan. In light of these factors, she confronts the challenge of reconciling China's support for Russia's interpretation of the global order with the strategic objective of preventing the strengthening of transatlantic unity. In response, the United States took action by mobilizing its Asian alliance network and elevating the significance of security cooperation among nations like Australia, India, Japan, UK and the US. Simultaneously, the Taiwanese government has intensified its endeavors to bolster the island's defenses. China perceives Russia's invasion of Ukraine as a proxy war, a battle against the West, specifically targeting US power, much like Russia does. The outcome of this war carries implications beyond Russia's borders, potentially signifying either victory or defeat for the international order. For Beijing, the primary objective is to prevent Russia's complete failure in Ukraine. Acting as a peacemaker serves to avert such a scenario. However, if this approach proves unsuccessful, Beijing may opt to escalate its support for Moscow, encompassing financial assistance and arms provisions. And with that overview, I'll hand this discussion over to Andrew. So we appreciate, obviously, the overview, and we thank Yuster for his team at the Open Source Center for, for providing that. So maybe what we could do is start with Yuster and ask, you know, as we look at the major developments we've seen since the beginning of this war, is there anything that stands out, Yuster, in terms of developments as you see it? But yes, two points primarily I noticed. One is in air defense. For 
such a long time ever since the Vietnam War or even later Gulf War especially, the world has seen how the United States conducted war. Primarily just uh, went ahead and suppressed enemy air defense and enjoyed the complete air dominance over the airspace they want to operate. And then many countries started to think that's the way it should be. And as it turned out in this uh, conflict between Russia and Ukraine, we noticed that neither country has been able to command the skies. Mm. And then we, we look at the uh, the reality check is that uh, maybe that will be the norm for many of the proxy wars or between two major powers. As we all know that the one of the greatest concerns the United States military is China's uh, A2AD, the doctrine that they see to aim to deny U.S. capability to dominate the uh, the sea and airspace in the theater yeah. of operation. Yeah. So uh, when we look at this, apparently Russia is a much more technologically sophisticated air force, but one year passed and they're still unable to dominate the airspace. And just to step in for a second, why do you particularly do you think it, they have not been successful since they've, well, outwardly we've seen that they, they are a more experienced military? For the first thing is that I think instead of competing for air superiority or air dominance over the skies, the Ukrainians use air defense systems of different tiers, high, medium, and low, lower tiers, S-300, SA-10s, or even uh, 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 man-portable air defense systems to deny the Russians the mm. opportunity to achieve air superiority uh, over the mm. uh, skies of the Ukraine. And instead of competing for air dominance, they simply chose to deny the opponent of achieving air superiority. That for countries like Taiwan, I would think that's a more logical way to do because apparently you're a much uh, a weaker place in terms of numbers and, and the fleet of airplanes and, and other things. Good. Interesting. Arnold, uh, just wanted to get your what has struck you as a major development as you look at the conflict. Well, it's highly dynamic conflict, um, been going on for 18 months um, or so. What struck me at the beginning is obviously we have this major military power, Russia, invading a smaller country. And in the past, Russia has been advertising a lot of high-tech weapons, um, obviously cyber warfare being one, uh, conducting cyber military operations in, um, in various countries in various forms. Um, the other one was being fifth generation jets, uh, hypersonic missiles, uh, AI integration. So we were seeing a lot of um, new development from uh, from Russia. And what we were expecting is Russia will be leveraging those, those capabilities. But it turned out that the um, military confrontation between Ukraine and Russia has been very much a war of attrition in the, mm. in the style of... Uh, World War Two, basically, mm. so uh, fighting tra in trenches, uh, fighting with heavy artillery, uh, mm. killing tens of thousands of, of, of military people and civilians as well. So that's definitely one um, one thing that uh, was quite um, what what surprising, and that Russia did not really leverage those, those high tech things, uh, cyber warfare 
did not happen. We have seen some evidence that Russia was conducting some cyber activities against Ukraine, but I, I believe that Ukraine has been very much uh, prepared uh, because they had suffered some, uh, suffered some heavy cyber operations in the past, especially in the back in 2014-15 against its infrastructures. So Ukraine has time to prepare itself and become more resilient against those, um, those cyber operations. But on top of that, we have seen some major technology disruptors. And I think that's something we can um, dive in, but the emergence of, of drones, of AI integration that can help to better enhance targeting systems. I think that's um, a key enabler in that war. And obviously, we are in the midst of the uh, counter-offensive. So that's a lot to unfold here. Yeah. And do you think, just a follow-up on that, I mean, in a former life, we used to follow, obviously, advancements in the military and anything that would happen in Russia. There was a, a long look. We were very skeptical very often to printing anything that came out of the Russian PR system, and we had to verify it ourselves. Do you think that the Russian advanced weapons is maybe not what we think it is? For sure, in terms of controlling the narrative of firepower, you know, between uh, US and Russia, there's probably a degree of overstating their capabilities. And I think mm. everyone is doing that, US, China, Russia, to some extent. But then when you, you come to the, the practical aspect of it, now you have to reveal those capabilities, and we are seeing a gap. There's some evidence that some uh, hypersonic um, missiles have been, has been used. Maybe Russia is keeping them because they don't have much significant stock. But definitely, I think we have been overstating Russia military capabilities. Mm. I don't think that it should come as a surprise because the military history will show us that um, normally a, a certain type of advanced weapon, there's never going to be a silver bullet to win a war with the technology. It has always been how you conceptualize and change the doctrine and train to use that in, in a way to win the war. Well, it, it should not be a surprise. If you look at the uh, 2006 Israelis against the Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, well, the Israelis, the IDF has been, they, they had never lose. They're always victorious in that region. And after Gulf War, they adopted this um, U.S. Uh, effects-based operation, lessons learned, and turned out it, it didn't work as well. So they kind of abandoned that concept. And the next time when they uh, deal with Hamas, they went back to the basics. Uh, like what we see right now in Ukraine, it's fundamentally how you train your people, how you use, uh, it's how you adapt to the situation in the battlefield and how you can be resourceful and use whatever you can to defeat your enemy on the spot instead of like thinking one particular weapon can you win you victory. That's yeah, a good point. It's a combination of strategy and weaponry uh, applied to the theater that you're in also. So Kent, any comments on anything that struck you from your position and your expertise and capabilities? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'd see two main developments. So the first one would be these incursions by pro-Ukraine groups into Russia. So the the fact that the battle is now actually being fought a little bit on Russian soil, and, and you can mm. see Jonas 
attacks on the Kremlin. I think there was one in an apartment block and in outside Moscow. There was the mutiny, of course. And so how the Russian government is now having to handle the information space around this. So now that Russian citizens are actually seeing what's going on in Bel- Belgorod or, or even in Moscow, how is the Russian government actually dealing with that? How do they continue to kind of gloss over the fact that this is happening? How do they continue to convince people that things are still fine and that, uh, you know, the special military operation, as they call it, is still proceeding, you know, quote unquote, successfully? In my opinion, it's getting increasingly difficult to do that. We're now getting to a point where there's just there's too many negative things going on for the propaganda machine to properly um, ameliorate or mitigate. The second thing is on the tech side. So, Ukraine has absolutely demonstrated that it is much better at adapting these modern, these even little things like getting a, a chatbot set up to accept tips from people on the home front, like where Russian positions and so on and so forth. They've been much better at adopting that kind of thing, fighting a, as um, Euster said, basically adapting successfully, whereas Russia has relied more heavily on just conventional weapons and warfare. With Ukraine doing that, by having internet connections through Starlink and other internet providers set up on the front lines, by having to, to you know ensure the flow of information from drones to central command, where they, they, they can then decide on whether to attack uh, various positions. These types of things are ultimately going to win in this style of, of warfare, in my mind, that if you can be the one that can integrate all these little things and find ingenious ways to use existing technology to give you mm. advantage. Add to that the patriotic angle. You have a, a you stand a much better chance of uh, coming out successful. And just going back to your first point, which I thought was quite interesting. I mean, he's been a master of manipulating his own people. And we always think of disinformation going one way that's out. But obviously, he does a masterful job internally with these attacks, which I'm guessing are going to be more. What does he do? What do we foresee internally, which we probably are not going to see outwardly? But how does Putin strengthen himself internally? Just do more of the same what he's been doing for many years? Yeah, that and and I think the incursions offer a clear opportunity to further the mentality that Ukraine is evil, that this special yeah. military operation, this invasion is necessary, that it's Ukraine and, and its Western allies that are the ones funding and ultimately guiding these attacks. And that if it wasn't for the West, then Ukraine would be would already be destroyed and, and so on. And so or, or I guess ours or, or theirs. And so it's in a way it's helping. It's helping the propaganda machine, fueling the propaganda machine. But if, with each successive incursion with each visual confirmation by Russian citizens of these incursions, it whittles away the possibility that what's being said might be true. So more and more people will start to go, wait a second, is this this actually true? Is it really what's going on? But uh, again, I don't think that that will happen to any great degree. But the longer this goes on, the in theory, the more incursions will be made. Uh, the more evidence there will be presented to Russian citizens that this is now being fought in Russia as well. It'll just be more and more difficult to for him to control. So he'll still continue to do the same things that he'll do, but whether those will be as successful as they have as they have been in the past remains to be seen. Plus, you have all of the Russian citizens abroad who are obviously getting are not kind of within that sphere of propaganda. They're able to look at other sources and talk to different people and 
Yeah. And, and, you know, they've already been persuaded that, that this is not what it seems to be, you know, if you're just simply following Russian media. What kind of lesson do you think Beijing is is, is, yes. is learning from this? It's a great question. I mean, for one, they're not going to win in the court of public opinion if they were to invade Taiwan or, whoever, I don't know, Philippines, if, if it gets to that in the South China Sea. It becomes this situation of how do you convince your own population that what you're doing is right? Mm. Now, we can say that China, as with Russia, has been, and I mean, America too, has been very masterful at convincing its population that its path is the right path. And what remains to be seen, I'm not sure, but what is public opinion saying in China? If one were to conduct an, an objective poll of Chinese citizens, of a, of a, of a uh, statistically significant selection of Chinese citizens, what would they say about Taiwan if they were allowed to respond honestly and whether they would support some uh, kind of invasion? So I think on one hand, China's thinking, okay, well, let's see, we've seen how Russia has handled this. We've seen the, just the continued remaining consistent in terms of propaganda and using every negative thing that happens, flipping it so that it becomes a positive propaganda tool. They can say that is, uh, that's one, definitely one way to go about it. But at the same time, it's also to convince allies, convince people outside of your own country that what you're doing is correct. And, and we've seen it in, even in Western countries where there are people who, who believe that the invasion is the, the correct path. And the more those people that you can get on your side, the more you can amplify your message. Yeah. It doesn't have an instant impact, but it does okay. over time. And I think that's the that's maybe another thing that China's learning is that it's you have to be patient. Yes. Disinformation is a long propaganda is a long game. You don't play it to win today, you play it to win next year, next decade. It's just 10 seconds. Does it matter that China has a better control of the um, information outlet uh, with their um, more strictly controlled information infrastructure? Does it matter? I think it helps. I mean, you can even look to COVID as an interesting example of this information space in China and, and how quickly they prevented information from getting out. But there were still citizens that were talking about this on, on WeChat. And yeah, it would it would certainly help. But I think at some point, if there's some percentage of the population that is a actively against the invasion, they will find a way. Now, you might see like in Russia, you might see a mass exodus. You might see millions of people leaving the country, in which case they will start to find you know, alternative sources of information, perhaps find ways to get that information back into the country. So in short, it helps. But the question is whether it will still be as effective over the long term as it is right. in the short term. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about a Russian is hardened because of sanctions. And it'd be interesting to see the, the, the uh, at least from the outward, look, people are certainly uh, have worked through some of these things. He has done this, but China has not. I mean, China has had unfettered success. And if something were to happen, it would be interesting to see what the response would be from the people. And you're right, COVID was a great example. Just wanted to come back to what we discussed and uh, just to bring a couple of points here. So, and this also can be put into relations with China. But first, what Prigozhin has done, the leader of uh, the Warner Group, uh, mm. his mutiny, is to reveal that the grip that Putin has on, on Russia is not as, as solid as, as we thought. Putin is not as masterful as we thought within uh, the controlling the, the political establishment in, um, in Russia. So we, we have seen 
Progozin being a, a, an opponent. We have seen Progozin saying that what has been said, what was the reason of invading Ukraine was based on lies, so contradicting the fundamental reason of invading uh, Ukraine. So obviously this has uh, a lot of impact on the battlefield. This remains to be seen what kind of impact this will have. For sure, this will uh, boost the morale of Ukrainian soldiers and impact the morale of Russian soldiers. But that's definitely one key thing. And, and how to, I want to relate to that or the strategy of uh, the heart and mind, winning the, the hearts and mind of people you want to uh, conquer. Basically, so and this is a, a takeaway for, for for China. If you want to occupy another another land, conquer another country, um, having that um, strategy of uh, heart and minds in place is, is critical. And obviously, propaganda, disinformation, or key tactics to, to to be used. And we have seen Russia with inheritance of the uh, USSR strategies being undertaking massive information information campaign, part of its military doctrine called Marisoroska or deception. Mm-hmm. And they have been trying to use this to spread um, disinformation and galvanize Russian-speaking Ukrainians as well. And also the traditional use of media and television to represent a continuity of Soviet disinformation practices. And to some extent, China also has been following that type of model as well. So I think um, definitely those, those cracks in Russian leaderships are similarly in China that uh, they have to be extremely careful in the future that uh, you know, the image that they are projecting is an image of a very powerful, solid state with a strong leadership, because otherwise they can have uh, strong impacts on the battlefield. Thank you for listening to iScan in Conversation. If you want to know more about today's topic, check out iScanGroup.com. Follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter and hit the subscribe button.